For years, Tasha Adams would get into these awful fights with her husband about money. Their finances were in complete shambles, even when they had a solid income. He would spend the money almost immediately. I would have to say, hey, the power is going to get shut off or, you know, the water is going to get shut off or this bill is due. It has to be paid tomorrow, meaning don't spend this money. But inevitably, her husband, Stuart, would find a way to spend it. A lot of times on frivolous stuff, like he'd order these expensive custom-made knives from catalogs. This was the 90s. And so he would not tell me until he would say, hey, there's a knife that's going to be delivered, you know, first thing in the morning. You have to pay the guy $400 at the door. Very reluctantly, she'd hand off $400 they desperately needed to keep the lights on, never making a fuss. Because if she did, he'd berate her or guilt trip her, tell her how she's the one who doesn't manage their money responsibly. Even though she didn't have a job or a personal bank account because he told her to close it when they got married. Throughout her marriage, Tasha held on to some hope that things would get better, financially and emotionally. That one day, the reality might match her expectations. She knew her husband had a rough childhood, and so she'd often tell herself, he deserves my patience. I can fix him. I thought, well, he just needs years and years of all of my love and attention to make up for all the years and years he never had from his family. And that's all it'll take. I mean, how hard can it be to fix someone like this? So she stayed, and she stayed. They had kids, first one, then three, eventually six. But Stuart didn't change. In fact, the only thing that changed is that things got steadily worse. In many ways, Tasha's story is a familiar one. In fact, we've told stories on this show about financial control within a marriage and how it's usually reflective of bigger, deeper issues. But this story is different. See, Tasha was far from the only one who believed if she supported Stuart, it would pay off. My husband was Stuart Rhodes, founder of the Oath Keepers, um, chiefly responsible for the January 6th insurrection. Stuart Rhodes is the founder of the alt-right militia group, the Oath Keepers. He's been charged for conspiring to incite the Capitol riots that happened on January 6th. 2021. He'd recruited former police and military veterans to the Oath Keepers, using far-right rhetoric about defending the Constitution against traitors. While their mission at first seemed vague, Stewart ultimately called on his group to help former President Trump overturn the election. He needs to know from you that you are with him, that he does not do it now while he is commander-in-chief We're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. Stewart's trial for seditious conspiracy is currently underway. We reached out to Stewart's lawyers, but they never got back to us. The group has all but broken up since the Capitol riots. But there were splinters long before that, in large part because of how Stewart spent the Oath Keepers' money. In a way, money was at the heart of Stewart's rise and also his fall. The way he earned it, the way he misused it, both in his marriage and in the Oath Keepers. And tracing it tells a complicated story, one of false hope, control, and manipulation. I'm Rima Khreis, and you're listening to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. 
It can be hard to put your arms around something as massive as an insurrection. But behind those big headlines, you can find clues in the smaller, more intimate stories. In the stories of the people who shared an inner world with a destructive force like Stuart Rhodes. Because behind any defining moment, there are a lot of tinier moments we never hear about. Things that, if they'd gone any other way, that defining moment might have looked different. Or maybe it would have never happened at all. Our producer Hannah Harris-Green and I have spent hours and hours talking with Tasha, trying to understand her marriage, which in some sense is a sort of decoder, a way of understanding how a man like Stuart works, how he could incite the things he did, and why people followed him. Today on the show, the life of Tasha and her children, how they became wrapped up in Stuart's financial and political schemes, and how the fate of this one family became tied to the fate of this country. Stuart Rhodes was good at making people feel like he was their savior, the person who'd come to lead them out of the ordinary and into the exciting. Tasha met Stuart when she just finished high school, living in Las Vegas, where she grew up. 18-year-old Tasha was terrified of confrontation. She was remarkably shy. That is, except for when she was on the dance floor. It was the one place she could express her true desire, to be seen, to be that person waving and blowing kisses at the audience. And it was ballroom dancing where she thrived. Because what ballroom dancing requires from the female partner in particular is the ability to follow someone else's lead. You have to be able to read um, body language and, and feel a slight movement because your partner could decide to change at any moment. And it, it's a very particular skill set to just follow. You know, if he suddenly decides to turn you or lift you, you just have to feel that. And so that was something that um, it seemed like I was pretty good at. To Tasha, it always felt like there was someone else in her life leading the way. She was the baby of the family, the youngest of five siblings, siblings who told her stories of their much more difficult upbringing. Before Tasha was born, her parents were still establishing their business. But by the time she came along, it was thriving, and the family was just all around more stable. And so Tasha felt guilty about how comparatively easy her life was. Being the youngest in a large family, Spoiled and entitled was a huge hot button for me. It was, a, it was something I was always afraid of being seen as. It left Tasha forever feeling like she didn't deserve what she had, that she owed people. And when Stuart waltzed onto her dance floor that year, he seemed to understand this insecurity almost immediately. At first, he felt like a dream come true, a dream she'd never quite dared to dream before, like he was inviting her to take the bolder, more sparkly Tasha that she became on the dance floor and live that life instead. Everything about Stuart felt like a dare. Stuart and Tasha met at the dance studio where she taught, and he began showing up to class early just to hang out with her. He was clearly into her. But since he was a student, they weren't technically allowed to date. So now we've added a layer of fate and magic and secrecy. Right. To this whole thing. All the ingredients you need to make something enticing. Yeah. <laughs> All the ingredients for romance and complete disaster. <laughs> Stewart had been honorably discharged from the military after an injury and was working as a valet driver. He was 25, seven years older than Tasha. He was smart. He was bold. He was so different from the dull Mormon boys she dated within her church and so different from her. Tasha lived with her parents at the time. 
Not long after she'd met Stuart, he called her family's house phone at 10 p.m. to ask her on a date for that night at midnight. It made her nervous, made her excited. He took her to the Hoover Dam, which was full of other couples. And we did kiss, and which is against mm. all my rules. You don't kiss on the first day. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think you kissed? Um, I sort of just looked around and thought, this is me stepping away from that world. And there's also a bit of freedom with dating someone who I knew was not an active church member. Tasha was raised Mormon as a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. So she lived under strict rules about almost everything, especially about dating. This kiss was assertive in a way she'd never been. It was almost like an invitation to a different world. There would be no judgment. Nobody would know what happens Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this world. It's not going to be gossiped about, you know, Sunday Sunday at church. How, How did he feel after that kiss? I was like, this is great. This is living. Tasha got home at 5 a.m. And then just a few hours later, Stuart was already calling her for a lunch date. She was smitten. Soon after, they started dating. He seemed to know what he wanted and was willing to go for it. He was also a big talker. But even that, Tasha loved. I was just so shy Mm -hmm. and so non-confrontational. And I, I really wanted someone to do the talking in life for me. Stuart was a persuasive guy, and while Tasha liked that about him, her feelings started to slowly shift. When a few months into dating, he tried to persuade her to do something that would ultimately shift her life trajectory. When they first met, Tasha had a plan. Her parents set aside $4,000 to help her get started in college, and she'd earn the rest by teaching ballroom dancing. After graduating, she'd become a journalist. That was her ticket to a bright future. But then months into dating, Stuart crashed his car. He needed a new one and didn't have money for the car he wanted. But Tasha did. That college fund of hers, he went after it. Like, if I borrowed this money from you, the money would be back. You know, if you're really serious about this relationship, if you really do love me like you you say you do, you know, you understand that I don't have a car and this is my one chance at a dream car. So then you lent him the money. I did. She figured, okay, he'll pay me back. It's fine. But weeks went by. The semester was just about to start. And she still didn't have her money. One day, they were in his new car when she told him. I need to start school. You know, I can't face my mom if I don't start school again. And he kind of laughed. And he looked Mm. at me and he says, I'll tell you what, I do have a deal for you. I have the best deal for you you're ever going to get. And he laughed. He says, I do, I do. I've got that all handled. And he looks at me and he puts the car in park and he gestures with his hand. And he says, I'll tell you what. This half, and he gestures to the passenger side of the car. This half of the car is all yours. Hmm? And that was my payment for... (laughs) I just cried. And I just... And I just hid. I faced the the passenger side just out the window and I just cried like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to make this money back? And the next thing that happened was I started getting very isolated from my family hmm. because I did not want to be around them because I didn't want them to bring up, yeah. you know, when are you starting school? 
what is going on? Tasha would ask him, when or how am I going to finish college? Stuart would assure her, don't worry, I've got a plan. But this was just the beginning of Stuart's plan. A plan that would not only derail Tasha's life, but also help plant the seeds for something much larger. That's after the break. After Stuart used Tasha's college money for a new car, he told her, don't worry, I've got a plan. He said it's simple. Well, it's the long route, but it's the right route. First, you'll put me through college. Then I'll support you through college. And then we'll have the life of your dreams. A big house with an open kitchen, whatever fancy cars we want, a property in the Vegas mountains. I'm destined for something great, Tasha. He told her that all the time. And he also had a plan for how she'd support him through college. He started pressuring me, you know, to quit my job as a dance instructor and start stripping. Oh. He argued stripping pays better than being a dance instructor. Like, just do the math, Tasha. Obviously, you should strip. But it was more than just math to her. He'd already pushed her so far beyond her Mormon roots. And yeah, at first that felt exciting— But more and more, it felt like she was betraying religious values that had been instilled in her. Values about how to behave as a woman. You know, I don't want to use the term damaged goods, but mentally, that's what I was thinking. You'd lost your virginity to him? Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. I did. And um, so, yeah, this this has changed the dynamic for me. You know, I, I wanted this perfect life, and it felt like it was too late for that other life Stripping would be just one more step in a direction she'd never intended to go. But she already felt so far gone, she couldn't go back now. In any objections she had, Stuart would squash them in the most Tasha-specific way. Like, he seemed to know exactly how to hook her. Stuart had a difficult upbringing. He came from a family of migrant farm workers, and he told Tasha that his family was poor and they were tough on him. He'd sometimes use this against her. He'd tell her, I didn't have the family you had. You know, I didn't have the happy board game, you know, family home evening. He's already demonstrated and laid out the evidence in front of me that I am selfish, emotionally immature, um, spoiled and entitled. Tasha told us that she'd never learned how to respond to that kind of pressure. She was just 19 years old. And in an effort to make him happy, to ease any tension she'd cave almost right away to all of his requests. And he wouldn't relent. If anything, he'd push harder in these smaller, more intimate ways. Like, almost every night before he'd drop her off at the strip club, he'd take her to eat at El Pollo Loco. I would say, no, I can't eat. I'm going to be sick. And he would insist on getting me a stupid burrito every night. And he'd put it in my hand, and he'd just stare at me and tell me to eat it. And I would take little bites of it, and every single time I'd say, pull over, and I'd throw up. And I, I honestly mm-hmm. think that maybe he got a sense of power yeah. that he was making me do something that was so demeaning to me. The one place she could escape was the one place that had always been an escape. The dance floor. As a stripper, I would put on performing mode, which I was really good at. Mm, you just and we on. had, yeah, and then we had that, that, you know, that 
energy was also addicting. Oh, and so sure. I did also have that side of me that really craved adventure. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of an outlet. It was the dichotomy of the world Stuart brought her into. It was both not at all her and very her, but like an outsized, bolder version of her. A version of her life in which the celebrities who filled the elite strip club where she worked, they shined the spotlight on her. Celebrities are requesting me to dance and I'm on the main stage and I feel like a superstar and I just dance nonstop all night. Or someone would just give me a $100 tip or $200 tip. And there was one night I came home with $700. But then, once the lights dimmed and Tasha was off stage again, she'd feel consumed by guilt. I thought, well, I'm, I'm definitely going to hell, so I hope there's a deal I can make with God. This sounds really absurd. But I, 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 I hoped that there was like a, a, a clause <laughs> in the God contract. Since ultimately my goal was to be a good wife and a good mom, as long as I didn't die between now and some kind of eventual redemption that I would ask for, (laughs) that maybe I would be okay. Not long after she started stripping, Stuart offered Tasha the redemption she thought she needed. He proposed, and soon after, they got married. Their wedding was at a horse ranch. It was beautiful, the kind of wedding she'd fantasized about for years. Everything felt great. I was so happy we're finally married. I've married my honor back, you know? So I fixed that. But then as they drove away towards their honeymoon. I suddenly felt sick and I don't know why. And well, I I guess it was my subconscious obviously screaming at me. Once they were married, Tasha's plans to go back to school seemed to disappear even further into the rearview mirror. She got pregnant and stopped working. Stuart did finish school. He graduated summa cum laude and eventually went on to get his law degree at Yale. Throughout our interview, Tasha noted multiple times that Stewart is very intelligent. After he was done with school, he started working for Congressman Ron Paul and doing sort of freelance legal work. Tasha would go on to have six kids. We talked to her oldest, Dakota. We bounced around the country a lot when I was growing up. I'd say we moved roughly every year and a half to two and a half years. Today, Dakota is 25. He says his family would hop around, sometimes living in student housing or with his grandparents. He remembers long periods where the family could barely scrape by. There were times where we lived entirely off of uh, canned oatmeal and dried apple chips for months. I will never voluntarily eat a piece of dried apple ever again as long as I live. Because even when Stuart was earning decent money, his spending was out of control. Like he'd buy all those expensive weapons and custom-made knives we mentioned at the top of the episode. Tasha rarely pushed back, and she didn't have a job herself. And the kids knew it wasn't something they could complain about. Because if they did, Stuart would start ranting about how they don't really care about their dad as much as they care about what he could provide for them. Like, Dakota remembers one day being in the car with his family when Stuart was saying things like it was their fault if he worked himself into a heart attack. If he dropped dead, we would all throw a party and dance on his grave. And he's punctuating this with uh, rhetorical questions like you would 
you would be happy if I dropped dead, right? And us little kids are in the back seat. And I believe there were three of us at the time. And we're like crying and yelling back no when he asks his rhetorical, uh, you would like to see me fall over dead because you don't care about me. And mom just drives back crying. Dakota believed that without Stuart, things would be much worse, that they would be out on the street. All the kids were homeschooled, and Stuart taught them that they needed their dad to protect them from all the terrible things that could happen in the world. This sense of impending doom that Stuart seemed to feel and instill in the people around him, it translates in other tangible ways. Like both Tasha and Dakota say he'd buy a crap ton of survival equipment. He was definitely a hoarder. The worse things got, the more he hoarded. Mounds of boxes, of bags, of survival knives. And he saw himself as a kind of future hero. He's the next George Washington. Or maybe a leader of some kind of post-American secessionist state. Dakota says over time, his dad's anti-government sentiments kept growing, boiling into revolutionary fervor during the 2008 presidential election. That year, Stewart had made a name for himself as an organizer for Ron Paul's presidential campaign. And when President Obama was elected instead, he felt that it was the beginning of the end. Dakota watched this transformation. That's when uh, Stewart's kind of pre-existing persecution complex and inflated sense of his own importance as far as being an opponent of the government, that's when that really started in. That's when the prepper talk really started in. And a lot of people saw Ron Paul's campaign as the last best chance to save America from coming collapse and uh, just assumed that it was all downhill from there. Unless, of course, Stewart did something about it. And he decided he would. In fact, Stuart Rhodes would help save the country. In 2009, months after the election, Stuart started to convert the fears and ideas in his head to a full-fledged organization in the real world. It was winter. The family was at home as usual. I remember I was in our bedroom. I was nursing my baby. It was my fifth baby. It's late. The kids are asleep. It's like two in the morning. And he, I can hear he's clacking away. And, and I can hear him because he always insisted on blasting music while I worked, even if I'm trying to sleep with a baby. <laughs> all the lights are on. He has ACDC blasting. This is how he worked all night. There at his computer, Stuart was writing essentially a manifesto for his new organization. The group would be nonpartisan, and it would recruit specific kinds of people. People who had sworn an oath to the Constitution, so mostly military police. People like him. He would rally them around that oath they'd all sworn to support and defend the Constitution, an oath they would band together to keep. He would call them the Oath Keepers. In his mind, the Oath Keepers were essentially the new founding fathers. Their purpose, not to start a new country, but to defend it. And just like how the original revolutionaries defied the British and their orders of tea taxes and the like, you know, defiance and service of a higher cause, he saw his group as also defying what he saw as a corrupt authority in service of a higher one, the Constitution. Stuart wrote and wrote and wrote late into the night. He's just clicking and clacking away at his desktop computer, um, piled with crap. 
you know, just a giant mess. And he'd been typing for hours. And I, I would definitely describe it as a mania. He wrote up 10 orders Oathkeepers will not obey. Some of the things sounded like run-of-the-mill right-wing talking points. Like, we will not obey any order to disarm the American people. But some of the orders are more out there. Like he wrote, we will not obey orders to blockade American cities, thus turning them into giant concentration camps. Finally, he finished typing and turned to Tasha. She was still in bed with the baby, dozing off. He woke her up and said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to post this. What do you think? And then he read those 10 orders to me. And he kept saying, this is an epic moment. This moment is huge. This will change everything. Tasha was five kids into this marriage by then. And this rhetoric was familiar. She'd heard his calls for other people to sacrifice in service of a supposed bigger cause. Help me go to school. And then you'll be able to go later. You're giving me your money so that one day I can buy you a big house and a nice car. But instead, she'd watched him use her money and support for really whatever he wanted. When he became the breadwinner, as he'd promised Tasha he would someday, it never actually did go to making the family's dreams come true. They kept eating oatmeal and apple chips for months on end, and he kept buying more and more survival equipment. So when Tasha heard his latest rallying cry, what she wanted to say... I found it embarrassing. You know, he's talking about we won't round people up into FEMA camps and and <laughs> we won't, you know, we won't do this and we won't do that. And it was like, of course, like, who is going to ask you to do this? But I don't say that, of course. When he was in a state like this, pushing back felt impossible and never really swayed him. So she swallowed her doubts, crossed her fingers that Stewart's vision would pan out for good, that maybe they'll finally get the life he'd promised. And she said... I said, wow, this is going to be big. He seemed to understand something I didn't, that this was a huge moment. He seemed so positive that the second he hit publish, everything would change. And everything would change. Stewart would go on to make history. You don't have a right to disobey unlawful orders. You have a duty, a duty to disobey unlawful orders. It's a duty. Whether Tasha believed in this mission or not, she'd go on to help manage the organization. And what happened next to Tasha's family, to the country? That's next time. This is a two-parter. The only person who really knows where all of the group's money went is Stuart Rhodes. I paid the power bill, past due, paid the rent, um, got our car title back from the car loan people. <laughs> I was still desperately attempting to salvage a father-son relationship and gain his approval. I just remember being so afraid. I was just shaking all over and he just walked out. That's next week on This is Uncomfortable.
If you have any thoughts about this story or just want to shoot us a note, you can always email me and the team at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. We love hearing from y'all. Also, do not forget to check out our weekly newsletter. There's always great recs in there for things to cook or listen or watch. Uh, This week, I write about our theme for the new season, exploring expectations versus reality. You can sign up for our newsletter at marketplace.org slash comfort. All right. This episode was lead produced by me, Hannah Harris-Green, and hosted by Rima Khreis. We reported and wrote the script together. The episode got additional support from producers Alice Wilder and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Zoe Saunders is our senior producer. Our editor is Karen Duffin. Mark A. Green is our digital producer, with help from Tony Wagner. Our intern is Kunal Patel. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand at Marketplace, and Francesca Levy is our executive director of digital. And our theme music is by Wonderly. This is Uncomfortable is supported in part by the Cy Sims Foundation, partnering with organizations and people working for a better and more just future since 1985. All right, we'll catch y'all next week. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Sometimes you need a change of pace. That includes your finances. Get smart with your budgeting with financial tips straight from the nerds. NerdWallet's trusted experts will set future you up for success by untangling today's web of financial misinformation. Learn about smart investing strategies, tax planning pointers, and travel tips to save on a fun family getaway, maybe somewhere tropical. Spring ahead for smarter decisions in 2024. Follow NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app.